Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tikowski. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. I am incredibly excited for today's episode for a variety of reasons. When I was first kind of mapping out the subject areas that I wanted to explore on the podcast, and I'd mentioned to people that I wanted to include uh, the topic of sex tech alongside industries like fintech and reg tech and insure tech, uh, I was usually met with a few different responses. Um, And in large part, those responses were met uh, by many of my male counterparts. First response was always, what the heck is that? I have no idea what you're talking about when when you say the word sex tech. And for those people that did actually know what it was, uh, I got lots of confused looks about, well, what does that have to do with law and innovation and everything that you do to practice in? Well, today's guest, I hope, is going to answer a lot of those questions for those people who were left scratching their heads when I was putting together outlines for the topics I wanted to explore on Tech on Reg. So joining me today is Maxine Lin. Maxine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be be on your podcast today. So why are we listening to Maxine, everyone? Uh, Maxine is an intellectual property attorney with the law firm of Keohane and and D'Alessandro. Did I say that right? Colleen and D'Alessandro, just about. Perfect. Um, So what Maxine does for a living is that she assists companies with protecting innovative technology and brands. She prosecutes patents for sex technology, trademarks for business brands, and copyrights for creative materials like porn images and movies. Um, She helps clients in licensing transactions, manufacturing, and development agreements. Um, And with a background in technology, Maxine, from what I understand, sees an immense amount of opportunity for innovation in the sex tech space. She has two patents herself and several others pending on her own inventions. Uh, And Maxine, I cannot wait to hear some of your perspective on what I am sure is going to be a very popular episode. Question number one that I think will nicely set the stage for, for the rest of our chat today is what is sex tech? If you look online, I think Cindy Gallup probably defined it best uh, when saying sex tech is really technology and technology-driven ventures designed to enhance, innovate, and disrupt in every area of human sexuality and human sexual experience. Now, I liked reading that definition because I was like, oh, that's nice and soft and, and approachable, and people can, people can kind of feel comfortable with reading that. And then I thought it really important, Maxine, and this is where I want your awesome brain to come in, is to get into the nitty gritty. It's like, okay, well, that is a great definition and it seems nice and broad and covers a lot of space. But what exactly is the technology or technology-driven ventures that are, that are part of the industry um, that fit into Cindy's kind of very nice, approachable definition? Sure. So it's sex tech covers a really broad range of um, of technologies and and ventures. So of course it includes technology that would enable and enhance orgasms and um, and sex in general. 
but it also includes a lot more that I think some people tend to, to overlook or not think about as actual sex tech. Um, it encompasses software and devices that assist in teaching, learning, uh, exploring, things like communication about sex, um, sex education, uh, exploration of sexual identity, issues of consent and how to properly give consent and request consent um, and sexual health in general. So it's really a quite a broad area and it's a, it's a, a very sexy area. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's not all about the dirty stuff, right? Because I think that Every time I've tried to talk to uh, people about this, you know, people's eyes light up and like they, they get all giggly. Some people get a little flush, but it, yes, there's a lot of fun stuff baked in, uh, baked in there in the subject areas that, you know, you referred to uh, at first, but there is so much more complexity um, and real, uh, real different sorts of value to be derived from a lot of these uh, innovations and particularly in sex ed and communications. And I, I think that part is incredibly important. And I think that emphasizing the importance of that maybe will take away some of the, the stigma. I mean, burgeoning industries like fintech and edtech and, and health tech constantly in the news, constantly talked about still not sex tech. And I think given the ubiquity of sex, do you think that's going to change? I think that sex tech is definitely starting to flow into the mainstream. And I think that people are beginning to recognize it as a quote unquote legitimate form of technology. Um, a lot, it makes a lot of people blush or giggle, but the reality is it's, it's real technology. Um, it's, very big business and only going to be bigger in the future. And um, I think we're going to see a lot of amazing things come from sex tech, not just again in the bedroom, but also, I mean, sex affects so much of our lives. Um, you know, look at all of the issues with um, sexual harassment that we've been seeing and, and perhaps there will be technology that will help people learn you know, how to, what's not appropriate um, before actually doing something that's not appropriate. So it's, there's going to be so much that's going to fall into this category. And I think it's only going to grow and it's only going to become more and more recognized as, again, quote unquote, a legitimate form of technology and innovation. As a lawyer, as lawyers, as the two of us are, I think the kind of legal and regulatory framework surrounding the industry becomes incredibly complicated for a variety of reasons. But I think fundamentally it comes down to kind of the laws and society's real conflicted attitudes towards sex generally. Um, everyone enjoys it. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, and then I, I think it kind of, I think Cindy Gallup actually wrote about this and also said that as a result of that, it's sex is really defaulted in the public conscience to an act and a thing we do instead of um, a personality and part of our humanity, uh, which is why, you know, the taboo remains taboo. But I do think it is changing and evolving in, in the ways that you're suggesting. Uh, and I love the fact that today, there is actually a term for it in general. 
right? Like we are at, like sex tech is, is a term and it's a phrase. And years ago, there would have never been a chance in how that two women, two female attorneys would be talking right now about law and innovation and regulation um, around the sex industry, which I think in and of itself is super cool. I don't know how you feel about that, but the fact that we even get to have this conversation, I think is awesome. Yeah, it's um, it's the most fun part of my job, I can say. <laughs> yeah. So... So uh, before we before we uh, delve into kind of some of I would say nerdier legal issues, I have I have to know the answer to this question. Um, when we're in law school, right, and we're learning about our contracts and our torts and business organization and so on and so forth, uh, yeah, there's not really a class surrounding this area of the law. So at what point as, as, a, as a young lawyer, as a developing practitioner, did you say to yourself, nope? I want to be the sex tech lawyer. How did that come about? <laughs> so I actually um, stumbled upon it um, back in. So we go way back when I was in high school. I was taught by my health teacher. The whole class was taught by our health teacher that um, as women, if we used a vibrator, that we would never be able to orgasm from a partner. And me being the good student that I was, <laughs> believe that. <laughs> And it wasn't until fast forward uh, 12 years later, I wound up at a a sex, like a home sex toy party. One of those like Tupperware style. Right, right. A representative comes to someone's house. And so I wound up at one of these parties and I'm looking at the catalog. And, and to be honest with you, I really, really hadn't seen a vibrator <laughs> in quite a long time. Um, maybe pictures, but that's about it. Um, and I, I bought one and it sat on my kitchen counter uh, for about three months. <laughs> I didn't even open it. Um, and then finally one day I was bored and I'm like, well, let me try this out. So <laughs> I did. And um, I, I liked it. <laughs> but I, from a technology standpoint, so when I was looking at this catalog at this party and I was going through um, looking at the different toys that were available at the time. So we're in 2013. In 2013, it, the industry was still very much in its infancy. Um, a lot of stuff has happened since then. But I remember thinking as an innovation attorney, like, wow, like, there's got to be so much more that can be done with this stuff. And so um, I had my toy and I was thinking about it you know, a couple weeks later. And I was thinking to myself, well, I can get the physical stimulation from the toy, but I can't get the emotional feedback that I would get from a partner. And sure. Thinking to myself, well, why not? And so I started doing some searching as, as a patent lawyer, you know, that's what I do. And <laughs> I couldn't find anything like that. And so I filed um, a patent application on it. And again, with the the taboo and the stigma, I actually didn't talk to anybody about it. Um, patent applications are confidential for a year and a half, and then they publish at a year and a half. And so once it published a year and a half later, I just like, well, I guess it's on the internet, so I might as well start talking to people about it. And I did, and I, it was just amazing. Like, it's really amazing how when you, it's basically, it's almost like giving permission to somebody to talk to you about their sex life and people want yeah. about it and people have questions about it. 
and I formed amazing friendships and, and met so many interesting people and got so much great feedback just from talking about these kinds of things, just talking about sex and sex toys in, in general. And I went to a, I went to a conference about three years ago, um, an industry conference to kind of check out what things were like in the industry. And I, I fell in love with it. And I saw that there really wasn't anyone approaching the law relating to sex tech the way that I envisioned that there should be. Um, there was really nobody pushing the importance of patents and that these are important and that there's a lot of other important um, legal issues relating to the technology itself and ethical issues that will come up. And um, you know, there's other great lawyers in the business, but nobody was really touching the sex technology aspect. And so I wound up starting a blog, um, sextechlaw.com, and it started to get noticed and I began to offer which is, by the way, I hate to interrupt you. That is exactly how that is exactly how I found you. Because when I was trying to do research, I was like, this is an area that's so important to explore because the disruption and innovation that's happening um, is is so interesting. And, you know, when you think about it, ultimately like sex tech and sex, that is the ultimate universal human use case. Um for innovation and technology, which pretty much makes it the largest technology market of them all. So why in the world aren't we talking about this? Uh, and as I was doing my research um, and I came across uh, your information, I said, holy cow, this chick totally gets it. I need to talk to her. Um, oh, thank and, you. <laughs> and, 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 here, and here you are. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of, um, I... I fell into learning about sex tech and then I just fell in love with the topic. I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating from so many different perspectives. You know, I started in just looking at patent tech, patenting of technology and um, what that meant. And then just dived into all of these other related aspects that, I just, I just kind of went down the rabbit hole and uh, my life has been much different ever since in a very good way. <laughs> well, I think that's terrific. So I, I'd like to switch gears and talk a little bit about, as we think about sex tech generally, what is the kind of regulatory um, framework, the legal uh, universe in which many of these companies and businesses have to operate? As I was doing my research, to me, I could draw a lot of analogies of the hurdles and struggles that a lot of these businesses um, must face, analogous to you know burgeoning businesses in cannabis or other sort of uh, industry that are making a transition from what used to be not okay to talk about um, and think about. Um, and as they become more mainstream. So I know a lot of sex tech industry participants have hurdles in their businesses that other entrepreneurs and other businesses just don't have. Um, from simple things like being able to start your business, securing payment platforms, advertising on social media, and those, bar those barriers, you know, are due to a lot of factors. Um, 
some of it is that conflicted mindset about industry that, you know, we were talking about earlier, outdated perceptions of what the sex tech industry actually is. But to me, I thought it was very interesting because sex tech is experiencing, I think, a lot of the same stress that, you know, the cannabis industry, for example, right now is experiencing in terms of, okay, we're allowed to have these businesses, but simple things like, how do I get money? How do I, uh, how do I do simple financial tasks in order to properly uh, run my business? Um, they are, while very, very simple in, you know, for fintech and red tech and ed tech and insure tech, not so simple for sex tech. Am I right? That would be true. There's a bunch of reasons I think that collide that are why running a, opening and running a sex tech business is complicated. Um, some of the laws are, are outdated that were based on morality and taboo. And you mentioned some of the outdated laws uh, that become problematic for sex tech businesses as they try to get up and running off their feet. Um, can you give us an example of one of those that you're referring to? So one that's very close to my patent lawyer heart um, are the morality clauses in um, some of the patent and trademark laws in jurisdictions around the world. So morality clauses basically are laws that exclude certain types of inventions um, or trademarks from being registered because they're somehow immoral. Now, in terms of patents, these usually cover things like um, genetic issues, ethical issues relating to genetic engineering or Patenting live organ, organ <laughs> patenting live organisms and things like that, but they also, in many cases in areas around the world, will shuffle in sex toys. Um, for trademarks, a lot of jurisdictions include a morality clause um, banning what would be considered by some people as vulgar or obscene marks. So in the United States. Uh, for, for decades, we had a morality clause in the trademark law that prohibited uh, scandalous and immoral trademarks. And so trademarks that included either sexually explicit language or sexually explicit imagery um, would routinely be rejected uh, by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And Without and and let me and let me guess um, the arbiters of what was moral, immoral, vulgar, not vulgar, explicit, not explicit, were those regulators sitting within the USPTO? It was up to the examiners um, at the USPTO, and the so when a trademark application gets filed, an examiner has to review it and then make a decision, and there. There is some case law, but it's basically a case-by-case -case basis. And I think that people in the USPTO want to do the right thing, but they have to go based on what the law says and what um, the cases, uh, you know, the judge decided cases say. So the law was that you could not register a mark that was scandalous or immoral. So... Along came this case, um, started out as In Ray Brunetti, and the applicant there wanted to register the word fucked, F-U-C-T, um, for a clothing brand, and it was denied 
at the USPTO, and he appealed it all the way up to, um, to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court um, agreed to take the case, and just this year, um, they held that it uh, was a violation of the First Amendment rights, and they did strike down um, that portion of the law, which now opens a huge white space. You know, there's a huge blank space now in the trademark register for these sexually explicit marks, um, which creates big business opportunity. And it's it will now allow adult brands that use sexually explicit terms to be able to get all of the rights and benefits that other companies get from being registered. Okay, I'm scratching my head for a minute. So we're <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna rewind. So like this sitting Supreme Court, as it's yes. comprised today, decided yes. that they were gonna take out a morality provision from the trademark law to allow a brand to use the word fucked, F-U-C-T, in its brand. Like this Supreme Court did that. This Supreme Court did that, yes. Well, uh Cheers to them and cheers to progress, <laughs> yeah. because I think if you would have taken a survey of 100 random individuals about the composition of this conservative Supreme Court taking a position like that, um, I think a, I think a 99 out of 100 lawyers might might say, no way are we is this conservative court going to going to do that. But cheers to them. Um, and I think uh I think that's real progress. I'm, yeah, it's huge progress. And like I was saying, it really is going to mean a lot for the industry. It's, it really was unfair that um, companies that use sexually explicit terms were not able to get the benefits of a trademark registration. And you can, while you can build a brand on an unregistered trademark, it's certainly not ideal. And a registration brings with it certain um, benefits and privileges, and they were being excluded from that. So, and now, by the way, proceeding that way is never a way that you or I would ever counsel a client to build a brand, right? In any in any other sort of industry, we wouldn't say yes, pour all of this time, effort, and money into building a brand around these terms, but go ahead and leave yourself vulnerable. That's never something that we would ever advise a client to do. But in this industry, I guess up until now, that was the only option. Well, if you were going to use a sexually explicit mark, um, that was the only option. If you used a, a mark that didn't exactly, you know, state the nature, I guess you would say, of, of what you were doing, then it would be okay. But to register anything with the word fuck in it, um, sexually explicit images, most of the time were just turned down. Yeah, it's a lot harder to enforce an unregistered mark than a registered one, so... This is, this is really big for the for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about some of the IP trademark issues, the free speech issues that come up. Um, one area that I think is pretty fascinating is also the data privacy and security aspects of sex tech and what goes what goes in as many of the devices I imagine that are being innovated right now really are part of the IOT, right? They're part of the internet of things. They have, uh, they have wireless communication capabilities. They are, there's apps connected to our smartphones. Um, and those are all devices that are just as vulnerable to, to hacking and security breaches as any, as any other 
any other item with a wireless connection, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. If a vibrator is connected to the internet, um, it's just as susceptible as your refrigerator toothbrush connected to the internet. And it's got a lot more sensitive data on it. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say that the information on those devices certainly puts the personal and personal identi- uh, personally identifiable information. Um, although I would say that uh, based on my observations and kind of my experience with the kind of patchwork regulatory framework for privacy and data breach, I don't, I don't know that a lot, if a lot of that information would actually under the statutes be categorized as PII. Um, Certainly it's a lot more sensitive and personal in nature than someone's credit card number that can get changed on a whim um, or, you know, their, their names, telephone numbers and addresses. Uh, But I don't know the frequency of certain device use and how long you use it and how often it's used and how many different connections you might have to an app. To me, that sort of information is so much more sensitive in nature and personal in nature than many of the pieces of information that are codified under a lot of the data breach statutes. So I'm wondering with, you know, the burgeoning market, whether or not we might be able to see some amendments to that, uh, to that statutory framework. So to make sure that, you know, a breach of that information is just as treated just as sensitively as breaches of other types of PII. I think in time um, that will probably be looked at. Um, I don't know that right now there is a specific um, bill or, or anything being looked at relating to? No, I don't think there is. I don't, yeah. I, don't think there, I don't think there will be for, for a little bit of time. But if you think about it, it's just like, what would I get more upset about? A credit card number that, you know, Visa, MasterCard, or Amex can, can change in 30 seconds um, or information about uh, the use of some of my devices? I think I know which one I'd care about a little bit more. Maybe the general public feels a little bit differently. Well, and there was um, actually a, there was a case that um, recently where a sex tech company, um, there was a a class action lawsuit against them because they were collecting information from these internet connected um, vibrators and their issue actually wasn't that they had done anything nefarious. They, they hadn't done anything um, nefarious with the data. They weren't sharing it. They weren't selling it, um, to my knowledge. And But what happened was they hadn't disclosed it in a privacy policy. Uh, so people just didn't know that this data was being collected. And so based on that, a class action suit was actually won against them for... Um, Five million Canadian dollars, uh, and I think after that case, I think that a lot of people, a lot of the players in the industry, you know, saw that and have checked their. I think that they're trying to improve their technology um, in terms of encryption and keeping the data secure, and they're trying to be sure that the disclosures are being made so that they don't wind up falling into the same very expensive uh, web that this other sex tech company wound up in. 
Yeah. Well, any of those businesses that are actually uh, doing business with California consumers right now uh, aren't going to have a choice. Um, The California uh, Consumer Privacy Act goes into effect January 1st, 2020, um, and the collection of data from their customers, uh, they're going to have to very explicitly say in their privacy policies what they're collecting, why they're collecting it, what they're collecting it for, and, you know, face regulatory liability if they do anything other than exactly what they say up front. Uh, so for those of, for, for those businesses listening out there that are getting ready to interact with their California customers, January 1 is not that far away. Uh, so that's definitely something that is no longer going to be a good idea. It's going to be a regulatory requirement for California residents. And there's lots of other states um, with bills on the floor, um, kind of in a similar in a similar vein for what what the disclosures are going to have to be upfront. So many of the laws around privacy and breach have been proscriptive. Um, they've been reactionary. They've been what you do and what you have to do when something bad happens after a security incident. But we're really seeing a shift in this country to handling privacy much more like they do in Europe with the GDPR and making sure that you're very explicit with the customers that you're interacting with about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what you have. And then there's also uh, that little area uh, of the law about the right to be forgotten. That's a totally different episode though. (laughs) Yeah. uh, That's a totally different episode, but it's, I actually think it's incredibly interesting and important in the implications for uh, this industry um, and how the interplay with privacy is going to be, I don't know, I think front and center because again, there is really no more private information. The nature right now, at least in that in that particular case, was the amount of time that you know the device was used, or the time at which it was used, the settings like Kylo, you know, things like that, or the type of was the type of data collected. But um, you know, in the future, these toys are going to get more and more high tech, and the data that's going to be collected is going to be more and more private. Heat sensors and moisture sensors and orgasm sensors and all kinds of things that um, are just going to be, it's only going to get more complicated, the type of data collected and, and, and the personal nature of it. There was a part of me that always thought, you know, as you say, the types of information um, being collected and that these devices will be able to monitor and have access to for, for all good reasons, not terribly different than you know, other medical devices that are used for, you know, health and wellness information about, you know, what's happening with someone's uh, pacemaker or so on and so forth. So part of me wonders, like, I I wonder if the federal government actually uh, starts paying attention, whether or not this might all end up falling under HIPAA, right? This is, in in a lot of respects, it could be health-related information, um, especially as everyone gets much more comfortable with the fact that, you know, sexuality is a part of our health and wellness. And this is all, you know, this is, this is good for us. Uh, but that's just my musings, right? This is my, my musings on the subject. And maybe we should have this covered under HIPAA so we don't have 50 different states classifying this information in 50 different ways. Um, because that patchwork framework hasn't, hasn't proven to be terribly effective for other industries. So why? Um, you know, why would it be any different here? Uh, but nobody's asked me my opinion on whether or not that information should be included under HIPAA or not. Uh, but it's certainly an interesting conversation worth having. 
So uh, speaking of, of HIPAA, I have to imagine that health and safety is a large part of kind of the regulatory framework that sex tech operates under as well. In terms of regulatory framework, um, sex toys are, are not currently uh, regulated by the FDA. Um, if they're actually you know, toys and not falling into the category of medical devices. Um, lubricants and condoms are considered class two medical devices, which mean that uh, they require FDA review um, through what's called a 510K pre-market notification with the FDA. But those are the main um, health and safety requirements of sex devices. And then when you, when you start looking at um, imagery and pornography and that part of, of sex tech, um, there is a whole other slew of um, health and safety concerns and regulations the industry has to follow. So one of the kind of, I think, hot topics that I've, I've, I've seen a lot of chatter about are kind of the creation. I actually think there's a, there's a comedian on Netflix that has her own sort of like Netflix special, but it's about the creation of really lifelike sex dolls. Um, some people call them sex robots, sex dolls. I know there's uh, laws um, being uh, either considered in Congress or have actually already passed in Congress about the creation of childlike sex dolls. Uh, but that whole that whole area of sex tech, which to me kind of reminds me of somewhere where we started, where you were talking about kind of like the human and emotional kind of connections um, that people either can or cannot get through devices. To me, the creation of that type of technology seems to speak a little bit more to that. Uh, but there was one, uh, there was one article that I was reading not too long ago about kind of with the proliferation of these sex dolls, which by the way, are incredibly expensive, like thousands and thousands of dollars for these lifelike sex dolls. There was a company that was interested in basically opening a sex doll brothel mm -hmm. where, uh, where, you know, customers could come and basically you didn't have to buy a sex, you didn't have to spend five, six grand to buy a sex doll all for yourself, but you could go visit one of these establishments. Um, that triggers kind of like that safety and sanitation and, and, and use stuff that we were talking about before. But let's pretend all of that was taken care of. This company actually couldn't get zoned, right? So the, the local government actually changed the zoning regulation to exclude a brothel that would include sex dolls. Um, so it was like done in like a matter of seven days uh, once, once the government kind of got into it. Remind me where this was. This was in Texas. I know everyone listening is probably shocked to hear that such a thing happened in the state of Texas. No offense, Texas. You've got a lot of awesome things that I love, but progressive views about sex is maybe not one of them. So, so yeah, so we have a situation where a company wants to start a business. It's not, it's not prostitution. These are dolls, not people, right? Yeah, they were going to be dolls, but the, uh, the local government didn't want it there. And there's... People have differing viewpoints on whether you know, sex dolls should be legal in general. Um, personally, I see no issue with sex dolls, um, but it's, you know, 
government regulation of things that occur in the bedroom is an issue that goes back a very, very long time. And so now we have all of this technology that, like, that we really couldn't make before that's creating all these questions. Like these sex dolls are, and they're very realistic looking. They are very, very realistic looking. And um, for some people, they find that vulgar or obscene and think that it should be, you know, outlawed. Right now in front of the Congress, a a bill was introduced um, in the House known as the Justice Act, um, which would, if passed, um, prohibit um, the importation or transporting of a child sex doll in the United States, a child-like sex doll. So it's a doll, it's not a child, it might look like one, but it is not a human being, it's a doll. And the United States government is is looking at basically outlawing outlawing the, the transport. Again, a lot of people find, especially a child sex doll to be vulgar, but- Well, I mean, first reaction, right? Like I'm mother of three. Um, I have three beautiful children, centers of my universe, lights of my life. So someone's first like initial visceral gut reaction is, well, of course, like, of course that's a problem. But then even me who is, uh, you know, a, a fierce, fierce mama bear of three takes a step back and is like, well, what are, what are all of the reasons why this sort of technology, this sort of, uh, device, because that's at the end of the day, what it is, a device would be created and used. Um, And as I dug into it a little bit more, you're right, there's fiercely, fiercely um, opposing views on the subject. Um, But then I was doing a little bit of research about some of the the benefits, the psychological benefits, um, particularly for some of these dolls being used um, in therapy for um, those who might otherwise seek um, an actual child to, you know, satiate whatever whatever need uh, they think they have, and whether or not the use of devices and dolls like this for for therapy or for other uses in order to deter um, having children be in dangerous situations um, was was very real. There's very real evidence there, and of course, there's um, certainly opposing views for all of I think the the not unjustified kind of gut reactions we all have when we hear about um, a sex doll that looks like a child. Um, But I think it's important for people not to jump to judgment so quickly um, and think about the fact that there might actually be really um, incredibly valuable uh, benefits to be had from some of these things and kind of not letting people's predilections and preconceived ideas um, about the subject areas be the ultimate and final decision. Um, You know, that's not a good idea when it comes to, you know, analyzing anything. Uh, But certainly in a case like this, where there's real material benefits and protections for for tiny humans to be had, uh, people should think about that aspect as well, as uncomfortable as it might make them. And I'm sure you know better than I do how freaking uncomfortable people get when you talk about this subject. Yeah. And I, I, that's a really great way to put it. Um, a child is not in danger if somebody is using a doll. Now, would it 
you know, the, the, the theory that it would make them go and then seek a child, a real child. Well, that's something that needs to be further um, researched. But if it's ever determined that that's true, then that would be a potential reason that the government could look at um, at prohibiting them. But in the meantime, it there's not there isn't evidence that this is going the child sex dolls are going to make people go and look for real children. And like you said, it may actually be the opposite where it will help in therapy and help them get out whatever these desires are without actually harming a real child. So until there's more research on the topic, I think that the government really should let researchers do the research and then based on that research, consider a bill at that time as to how it should, if at all, be regulated. Um, you know, in the Ashcroft case, the U.S. Supreme Court held that there has to be a direct connection to a crime, basically, in order to prohibit speech. And some people would argue whether a sex doll or a childlike sex doll is speech, um, but there needs to be showing a direct connection to somebody potentially getting hurt. I don't think we have clear evidence of that. And yeah, I, I think right now what we have is people feeling really icky about the notion of it. Um, and, I, and I also think it's important to recall that I don't think any of these businesses are going to set out to operate, invest millions of dollars in research and technology and manufacturing for the purpose of hurting kids or hurting anyone, right? That's, that's not why these businesses are born because they, they, it's, it's just not the case. Um, so I think you're right. I think that the idea that additional research and, and limited, I think a limited set of regulations for kind of the, the case study or some other sort of paid medical research, because in my view, I think the real, the only thing that may convince people that this would be um, okay, at least within our current regulatory environment the current composition of lawmakers in Congress is that you can show that something like this might actually protect kids. And if you can demonstrate a little bit of that, I think all of the icky feelings are going to go away or it may start to go away. I think it'll go a long way in uh, getting people more comfortable conceptually with it. But then there are going to be those people who no matter what the studies say or what you do, their minds are not going to change. We yeah. live in inter- We live in interesting political times. Yeah, and I'm not a, a therapist, um, and I'm not, um, you know, a medical researcher. So all I can go on is, you know, what we what we can see today, and let's let them do their jobs, and then from there, the government can do its job. But I think because of, like you said, the people's discomfort with the idea of a doll that looks like a child, I think the government is trying to act too quickly, and. Um, I hope that- I think there are plenty of people just uh, uncomfortable with the idea of a doll that looks like a, an adult too. There's there's a, That's true. there's a right like there's a healthy portion of the population mm-hmm. that is kind of uh, appalled by the whole by the whole notion. Um some of those people may live in Texas. I don't know. Um certainly they lived on the zoning commission board. Yeah. Uh, and you know and and over time these you know sex dolls is a it, it's a it's a really big business. It's growing um, very quickly. Um, 
And I think that over time, these issues will be, will come out more into the mainstream and people will get the chance to see it debated and see, um, you know, see the arguments on both sides and perhaps come to a conclusion that maybe they would not have previously because they get to hear both sides um, and understand more about how these, how regulations on these kinds of things can affect not only someone's life who uses it all, but there's a removal of a portion of free speech that can affect anybody. And that creates a precedent and not always a good one. So I, I just, I think over time, as these things come out more to the mainstream, people will, will get to make more informed decisions as to what their, what their opinion really is. Well, I can't wait for, as that time passes, to have you back to talk about how things are changing, interesting things that you're doing and you're seeing. Um, so as we, as we kind of wrap up today, I would leave you with this one last question. Um, if you want kind of an audience that's new to sex tech to take away one thing from our discussion here today, what would that be? I would, be, I would say to keep an open mind. Um, there's still a ton of people in the world, just like I several years ago, who've never even, you know, tried a sex toy or used one or, or maybe even seen one and seen, you know, how far they've come and how much good sex toys and sex tech can, can bring to people's lives. Um, sex toys um, and sex tech, again, it, it not only will help not only can help people in the bedroom um, who maybe have trouble you know, orgasming, orgasming with their partner and, and intimacy, it can also help with those issues of dealing with consent and sexual identity and, and learning about these things. And I hope that people will keep an open mind that this technology can potentially really do good things in this world. And that when in some people's minds, it's, it's dirty or, um, obscene to, to, to try to rethink that and, and look at the, the good stuff that it can bring both inside the bedroom and outside. Well, on that note, the one thing I want to make sure everybody leaves with is, uh, ladies, for those of you listening, uh, Maxine's high school health teacher was <laughs> super stinking wrong. So yes. if anyone else learned that in, uh, in health class, um, such is not the case. Uh, do not be afraid. And um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't let the episode end without directly challenging that, that, that notion. Um, but it's so funny because isn't that what we all learned in health? I mean, the fact, the fact that your health teacher even uttered the word vibrator is probably a massive testament to the comfort level of that person. Cause I sure know my health teacher wouldn't have ever talked about sex toys in that way. But health teachers, if you're going to talk about sex toys, you have to talk about them accurately. Um, because otherwise, uh, we've got a, a lot of young women who, um, who grow up thinking that certain things are either not okay or their bodies won't function the way their bodies should. Um, that's my two cents on the subject. Maxine, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I cannot wait to have you back. Um, and please, keep us posted on interesting stuff that you're doing. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure.